Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Hello, hello, and welcome to this October episode of Buildings on Air, the show where we talk about left politics and architecture, sometimes more of one, less of the other, and I am your host, Kiefer Dunn. Um, and yeah, we're still on this sort of like intermittent and random posting schedule, um, which will probably persist for the duration of the pandemic, uh, but that's okay. Um, we've got some exciting shows cooking uh, for you. Um, going to be uh, talking about um, sort of race in architecture and architecture academia in uh, coming episodes, I hope. Um, lots to talk about there. Uh, and then also, uh, you know, we got to bring back some air conditioning content. Uh, real buildings on airheads will know how much we love talking about uh, air conditioning. So um, rest assured, air conditioning talk coming your way in the future. But for today's episode, I'm very excited to welcome Brian Campbell uh, into, uh, yeah, the Buildings on Air family. <laughs> uh, Brian, uh, what's going on? Not much, man. Happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you. So Brian Campbell is the, uh, he's an architect in Portland uh, and a member of the Architecture Lobby, uh, currently serving as the External Communications Coordinator. Uh, yeah, you're the, the the master of all things posting for the architecture lab. <laughs> yeah, that's right. For my sins. Yep. Yeah, and uh, if you don't follow follow Brian on Twitter, uh, highly recommend. Uh, always coming good with the good content. Um, but yeah, I'm mostly excited to have you on the show for lots of reasons. Um, not least of which uh, is I think uh, you know. Uh, your Twitter's a lot of fun. That's that's like not the only credential that we consider our buildings on air, but 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 you also you know wrote recently this really excellent thing about verbs in housing policy, um, which I think really gets at some core issues uh, related to how we talk about urban policy. So like you know this is something that's come up on the show uh, and we've covered before here and there, um, but like I'm really excited to get into that with you because like. Oh, I broke my own rule of cursing. Gonna have to cut that one out. Um, but <laughs> holy cow, um, you know, uh, like urban policy Twitter is like one of the most toxic Twitters, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah, um, it's, so, it's you know, Yeah. So there's there's a there's a there's a there's a dimension, a posting dimension to it. But like really, really like there's some substantive issues here about how we how we think about these things. But first. Uh, let's let's do a little news corner um i wanted to kind of talk about um recent news out of aia new york on the show a little bit very exciting aia new york has agreed that um they will uh basically not um not be allowing any of their members to work on uh spaces of incarceration for the foreseeable future um, if they want to retain their AIA membership status, um, which is a huge, huge development. Um, so yeah, like I, I've, I've only seen bits and pieces of this news. Um, but Brian, I, I don't know. Have, have you, have you heard anything about this? What, what do you, what do you think? Yeah. So I just saw this, uh, come across Twitter the other day. Um, some people were kind of boosting it and I was, I, I was honestly surprised to see it. Um, you know, I don't, uh, 
want to totally get into the AIA and all that stuff, but um, my past experience with them is, you know, I, I feel like they're sometimes a little unwilling to take uh, these kind of political stances so directly. Um, yeah. And Im- important to note, this is from a, a chapter, not the national. <laughs> so I right. still don't, I still don't know how the national AIA took it. They have me blocked on Twitter, so I can't really see what they're up to. So, um, but I think it was, I mean, overall, it's a great step. And I think like, um, it's really, it's really great to see an organization like the AIA with maybe historically less of a labor focused lens on architecture, take a stance that kind of essentially equates to, um, you know, we need to use the power of our labor to stand up to these injustices rather than kind of designing them nicely. So it was, it was great to see. Yeah. Yeah. You do, you do truly love to see it. And uh, yeah, I, I'd be really curious just to hear more about how that sort of unfolded, like undoubtedly um, it sort of is like the result of a lot of like uh, pressure, right? Like, I mean, um, you know, design as protest, uh, a, a rather new, new group on the scene. Um, I, I, I understand had some involvement, like sort of pushing for this, um, you know, definitely uh, architects, uh, designers, and planners for social responsibility, um, ADPSR. Uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, they, they've been pushing for a ban on architects working on um, uh, sort of solitary confinement for some time. And this has been a kind of interest of theirs. Um, and I know they have a, a strong presence in New York, so it wouldn't surprise me if they were involved. And then also, like, you know, the architecture lobby, um, you know, I don't think uh, was directly involved, but certainly just like, you know, uh, we've been uh, banging on for years about how if you want to, you know, make change, uh, it's through things like this, not through, uh, you know, designing a better prison for the love of God. Like, <laughs> <there's no laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so chapeau uh, to AIA New York. Keep, keep it up. Do do more. Do more of this kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it was great. And I think it's it's one of these things that, um, you know, in a profession like architecture where we all like to think of ourselves as the good guys or on the right side of history, um, I think there's been a long history, unfortunately, of uh, architects and firms and organizations like the AIA kind of paying lip service to these things and the the difference in the AIA New York statement that I haven't, you know, you don't see much and I haven't uh, heard of much out of groups like the AIA in the past is really the acknowledgement that um, in order to do something about it, you, you kind of have to refuse the work and you have to, you know, use the power of you, you as a worker and your office and your coworkers to just say, we're not going to do this. And um, it, 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 it's a little bit of a, a shift that I was glad to see. So, yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and I, I mean, and it's totally, um, I think, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about it also is just like, you know, how 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 stuff like this comes about in the sense of like, you know, like so much of activist work is like ephemeral, <laughs> like, you know, you, you, you kind of like work on, on these issues and like, you know, they, they kind of bubble up in unexpected ways and make change in unexpected ways. Um, and like, I, I think, I think it's absolutely correct to, uh, 
just sort of like see this as the res- like the kind of end product of like lots lots of uh, left wing sort of activism um, in the architecture community, um, and and you know I, I think oftentimes there's a kind of like uh, pressure to like you know adopt some sort of like you know tech world like tech mentality about like how we evaluate success and like measure success. Um, but like, you know, the, even though you can't necessarily like draw a line from A to B on this one with the kind of activist pressure, um, uh, maybe you can't, I don't know, but, but, uh, you know, that that's how change happens, right? Like you do this kind of work and, 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 and eventually, um, sort of things like this, uh, happen and it's good. It will have a positive impact on many people's lives. Um, yeah, totally. I think it'll be you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, of course, the first time that uh, a firm wants to do a prison project and they have to grapple with this and, and how that ends up shaking out and whether whether the AIA New York chapter is going to, you know, how directly involved they're going to be in conversations around that because I'm sure it'll happen, um, yeah. especially in kind of the economic climate right now where firms are really hungry for basically anything that'll keep the, keep the doors open and the lights on. So, um, yeah, that's, sure. uh, it's great to see this statement. It's, it's going to be even better to see how the rubber hits the road when, when we get down to it. Um, yeah, but yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Cause all the AIA can really do to discipline its members is to, uh, kick them out of the AIA and some firms might take them up on that offer. <laughs> so right. yeah, there's still totally. work to be done. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, and other, another, like, you know, just su- super important and earth, earth shattering architecture news. Uh, yeah, Frank Gehry has announced a collaboration with uh, everyone's favorite cognac brand, uh, Hennessy. <laughs> 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 you know, clearly these are two pieces of news that are on the same stature. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. Oh my God. Um, you know, uh, yeah, who who would who would have thought that 2020 would give us this gift? Um, you know, uh, I will say I was I was blissfully unaware of this before you mentioned it to me. Um, and I'm I'm looking through this article on Dazine, and there's some there's some real gold in here, and I'm not just talking about the bottle, but uh, <laughs> these captions of uh, photos of just a a weathered old man sitting at this desk. You know, this kind of air of uh, <laughs> he does not look like his heart's in it. And the caption is just Gary designing the bottle. And I, it's, uh, <laughs> it's kind of grim. It's kind of grim. Yeah. Um, yeah. I have not looked at this disease quote, but, or this disease article, but uh, just picking a, a paragraph at random to give people, um, you know, a, a, a flavor of, uh, you know, fermented and distilled grape. Uh, if you look at the Greek sculptures, like the charioteer in Delphi or the prize fighter, they're able to transmit feelings through thousands of years with inert materials. That was one. <laughs> that was that was in my mind when we were doing this bottle. I wanted to make something that transmit this feelings. Uh, so, so there you go. Um, you know, I, this this to me. Um, just totally sums up uh, exactly the kind of architect brain that we're always we're always uh, you know critiquing on this show. Uh, that yeah, some somehow um, you know the, this this very expensive uh, liquor bottle um, 
is, you know, uh, a, a, a real callback, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> to, this is a real, this is a real case of, you know, I don't even know if Gary buys what he's selling in this case. It's just kind of like, you know, going through the motions, um, you can say what you want about the design or you can put design in quotes of this bottle, but it essentially is, uh, you know, it's like you took a bottle and wrapped it in tin foil and spray painted it gold. So I, it is evoking feelings in me, but probably not the ones that he was <laughs> aiming for. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and architecture students take note, you know, like you can uh, just straight up rip the quotes from uh, Mr. Gary here and, um, uh, you know, replace the mentions of bottle with my project. And, um, you know, that's, that's, that's an, that's an easy A in a, in a design review. Right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's, let's get into the meat of the show here. Um, yeah. So, you know, uh, maybe a month or two ago, uh, you kind of wrote, wrote this, um, this piece, uh, <laughs> called Nobody Talking About Housing Policy Knows How Verbs Work. Um, <laughs> yep, that's right. <laughs> and yeah, like, you know, it's 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 a short little article, but I think it, it sort of, you know, makes some fundamental points, right? It kind of goes back to first principles, um, you know, in talking about urban policy. Um, and, you know, like you're you're coming from, um, you know, the, the lawless anarchist wasteland of Portland. So, uh, That's right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, but so, so uh, but I, I'm I'm kind of curious. Just uh, before before we talk about, well, I'm curious to hear what prompted you to write the article. Like, sort of give us some of some of the context, um, and then maybe if you could just like sort of summarize uh, kind of the point you were trying to get across with the writing. Yeah, for sure. So this is something I've kind of been thinking about for probably, I mean, years now. I've I've spent uh, the past almost 10 years on the West coast in Portland and Seattle. Um, and like a lot of, uh, kind of tech metropolises these days, um, you know, housing is, is the central issue. Um, housing prices are crazy, rents crazy. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, pretty heated discussion about what to do about that. So this kind of came out of, um, years of being exposed to that, <laughs> those conversations, right. um, and just kind of the, the central, the central thrust of this. And the thing that I'm responding to is, is really less about, um, critiquing the, uh, the supply side ideology on its, on its merits, but more just about the way that people talk about how to solve the crisis. Um, and mostly this is coming from, um, you know, local, uh, let's see, mostly local politicians and, but also kind of the, the group of, uh, the layer of people who are kind of tech adjacent, um, wonk adjacent, you know, uh, big proponents of development to solve problems, things like that. And just the way that that kind of layer of people talk about housing, um, is really what spurred this. And, uh, the, the kind of the catalyst was, here in Portland, we just passed the, the residential infill project is what it's called. But um, at the state level last summer, uh, the state passed a law that said that no uh, city over 10,000 people can have like basically single family zoning isn't allowed in cities over 10,000 people. And every jurisdiction, 
had two years or whatever to bring their own zoning codes into into compliance with that in Portland. The residential infill project was Portland doing that. And that finally passing and kind of the conversation around that and the coverage of it um, was uh, annoying me. So I finally put these, <laughs> ide- put these ideas to paper and, and that's where we ended up. Yeah, word. So, uh, yeah, like what? So, let's tell us some of those some of some of those annoyances uh, in particular. Like, uh, you know, uh, especially this 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 sort of thing about verbs. Uh, you know, it's it's it's, it's interesting. Uh, give us give us some more. Yeah. So basically, the the thing is like when people are talking about solving the housing crisis from the perspective of. Um, more housing is going to uh, fix the problem. More, to be clear, more um, market rate housing is going to fix the problem. And and they use these words like, um, this is going to increase housing supply. This is going to add housing. This is going to provide housing. And really, there's a huge disconnect there because upzoning bills like this don't add increase or provide anything. They, they allow for things to happen, but they don't, they aren't doing any of the work themselves. Right. And there's this kind of, um, this kind of current of, of language like this that runs through advocates of these, of these bills. Uh, and it's, it's either ignorant or insidious or some kind of mix of the two. And so, um, I really just wanted to, to try and capture why I found it so irritating, but, yeah. but, but yeah, when you, when you read about people advocating for bills like this and, and they're using language like this bill is critical because it's going to add the housing units we need. It's going to increase housing supply. It's going to provide housing. Um, and, and really it doesn't do any of that. So that's really what I was trying to get at. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you make the argument in the piece that like we is really kind of, uh, shorthand for developers, like if you're not being more specific, like, um, you know, I, I think you, you kind of make the point in the piece that like, you know, you could, you could treat this as, uh, you know, semantics and, and to an extent it is, but um, unless you're really talking about who is going to be paying for the buildings and how they are going to get built, like those aren't just like details or footnotes like you know that that's like a really uh should be a should be a really key consideration in the policy discussion uh but it's it's sort of you know mystified or normalized that it's just developers and 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 that that is kind of um the the extent of everyone's world view uh, that you know it, it kind of has to be that way um, yeah, totally. And I think, um, yeah, exactly right. Like when the other thing in here that I wrote about was the use of the word we and um, really thinking about like who is saying that and, and who it's actually encompassing. So if, if you have a sentence like we need we need to add more housing or we need to create more housing, there's two giant asterisks in that sentence, right? Like, first of all, who is we? Who is creating and for who? And And those questions are kind of glossed over quite often in coverage of, of bills like this and initiatives like this. Yeah. When, yeah. like you said, they're, they're fundamental questions. Yeah. Cause you know, and, and it's almost like uh, you just wish that the cards were put on the table. Right. Because um, you know, I, there, there, there might be uh, 
some sort of world where like it is desirable to incentivize developers but i like i would like to see that spelled out so it could be debated on those terms right <laughs> like you know um and 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 at least so you know somebody uh to kind of open up the discussion about like you know what 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 some of the alternatives are um and instead of just presenting the market as this totalizing sort of trans historical force right like you know um the the government could be levying taxes on the rich to build housing right and and develop housing out of tax funds right like that's a very different a very different thing that could accomplish very different things um, than sort of, uh, you know, incentivizing, incentivizing developers. Um, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that that is kind of, uh, when you think about like, I mean, it's always interesting for me to think about like, and this is, I think it's a through line of a lot of the stuff I, uh, complain bitterly about on Twitter is what is the, like, what is the end vision? What's the utopian goal of kind of the liberal project? And for me, increasingly, the answer is kind of, there really isn't one. We're just going to kind of keep doing things the way we've done them. We're going to kind of tweak around the edges and we don't really have a destination in mind. And when you contrast that to like the socialist project, it's like, we have a goal. We want to democratize the economy in like, in all its forms and housing and in work and in everything. But, um, the kind of the center left or the quote unquote progressive or whatever you want to call them. It's like, I don't even think that they know, like in their wildest dreams, they would be ending up in a situation where maybe 3% fewer people were, <laughs> were uh, without houses or, or something, you know, it, it's kind of, it's crazy making in a way. Yeah, definitely. When, and there's also, I mean, there's, um, I mean, it's interesting just to think about the sort of way that, like expertise is sort of like used and abused and like, you know, uh, in, in these kinds of like policy discussions, um, you know, I think expertise is important, uh, but I kind of get the sense that in the urban policy discourse, like, you know, everyone kind of bleeding on about, uh, you know, policy proposals and sort of, you know, sucking them into a black hole of, of sort of uh, like discourse and bad faith debate, like is, is kind of like, it's, it's really like an expression of powerlessness in, in a way, right? It's like, it's almost analogous to um, what we talk about all the time on this show of like, you know, expecting a design project to like, you know, um, I don't know, transform the world when like, you know, buildings don't do that. Like people do that. Right. Like, and, and it's almost like, um, you know, people sort of sense uh, the difficulties in building people power and are, and are kind of like looking for a shortcut or something like that by, by kind of like developing, developing a kind of pseudo expertise. Um, and of course, in the immortal words of Naomi Klein, uh, there are no shortcuts to building uh, organized people power. Um, but like, <laughs> I, I'm, 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 I'm wondering, uh, I'm wondering if I don't know what 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 you think about that and kind of what the experience um, in Portland um, uh, has been with like this idea of of expertise in urban policy. Yeah, I think um, uh, it's it's really. I think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of the feeling of powerlessness. Um, I think a lot of the, a lot of the energy that comes into these like 
upzoning bills, which are happening up and down the West Coast, and I think in other mm-hmm. places too. But um, the reason they're seen as a solution is because it's like the one thing that um, liberal wonks feel like they can actually control. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's really, I mean, um, if we're talking about housing, like Engels wrote about housing in the 1860s or whatever with the housing question, and he basically came to the same conclusion, which is you can't really solve the housing problem without solving all the other problems too. So (laughs) if, if the real answer to the question of how do we fix this is, well, we need to transform the system and it's going to take a lot of work that I think that that answer is kind of unpalatable to a lot of people. And the, the, the sort of the fiction that doing anything is better than, than doing nothing or feeling powerlessness or, you know, you know, doing something is, um, is seen as a good in and of itself, even if in a lot of cases, uh, the something that you're doing because you're doing it in isolation is going to have a lot of negative impacts that, um, you know, you, you can't control or, um, will make other things worse or will make doing the thing that you're doing not worth it. But the feeling that, um, we can do this, so we should, and this is like, this is the, you know, this is the first step on the road to something, something, something. I, it, I, I don't find it very convincing personally. And um, I, I suspect in their heart of hearts, a lot of liberals don't either, <laughs> but <laughs> it is something to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, the Peter Camejo text, um, liberalism, ultra leftism, uh, and, and, or mass action, um, where he kind of makes a, a rousing case for, um, the sort of, uh, power of, uh, you know, the 99%, the working class, like, like whatever you want to call, call, call the majority of us. Uh, and, um, uh, one of the, one of the kind of points that he, he argues in that, in that text, um, is he talks about how, uh, you know, there's there's a kind of whole swath of people who are always calling for the general strike, um, but they don't ever believe that that will happen. Um, but they they sort of do it anyway, um, and uh, like, and, and it and it sort of ends up just like reinforcing uh, their the idea that everyone else is just rubes, right? Like, um, and I and I feel like there's a lot of uh, I mean, okay, like a general strike is a far better thing to call for than, you know, uh, market-based solutions to the housing crisis, like, you know, but there's a kind of similarity there uh, in in the sense of like, you know, um, gosh, like, is this like, you know, in the sense of like, it just betrays like a huge lack of faith in, um, you know, people's collective ability to make change. I also think it's, I mean, it genuinely is, um, it is kind of scary to think about, well, what if we, if we wanted to do this the right way, if we wanted truly, you know, hundred percent public housing, what are the implications of that? And like, what else would we have to tackle and take on? And it, it, like I was saying, it's, it's really everything. So in order to kind of do it right, there really are no shortcuts. And that is, I think, an overwhelming feeling. And I mean, that's kind of the uh, I guess that's the, kind of the generous take and the cynical take would be um, if we want to do this right, uh, <laughs> look at all these other things that are going to have to happen that are going to you know, negatively impact my life as a property owner or something like mm-hmm. that. So right. uh, there's kind of two things going on there. And then I guess just to talk about your question about the Portland specific context, one thing um, 
that I thought was really interesting in this whole discussion and kind of got buried in a lot of the coverage of it was, um, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of coverage from kind of center left, uh, publications and think tanks and people and, you know, architects and urbanist adjacent people where they were really, really ecstatic that this passed and it's being hailed as historical and all this stuff. But one of the, um, one of the city councilors who, who voted yes on this, uh, Chloe Udaly, her she had this quote that appeared in a couple places, but um, it, I don't have it in front of me, but it basically amounted to, you know, people need to stop freaking out about this. Uh, the best case is that this adds 5,000 units of housing over the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you think about that and you compare that to kind of the this being hailed as some kind of like paradigm shifting, you know, incredible solution. And it's at, it's only adding 5,000 units of housing. Like, what are we doing? Yeah. It's that's, that's nothing. 20 years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is the best we can do. And it's, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what we need. So it's clear that like some kind of huge, um, huge action and investment of time and energy needs to happen one way or the other. And, and the question is, I guess, like who's going to be doing that and, and for who, yeah. Yeah. Uh, wow. That, that is the million dollar question. <laughs> uh, or, or, you know, dip, dip, I don't, I, ha- I haven't done a pro forma on the bill, so it might be much more than that uh, in terms yeah, of. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, like, I, I mean, I'm sure everyone um, who's listening to this uh, has some sort of I don't know that this has some parallels in, in your city, wherever you're listening from. I mean, I think, um, I, I, you know, it's interesting to think about it in Chicago. Uh, the housing affordability crisis here is like really limited to um, sort of neighborhoods on the north side of the city, in particular, uh, sort of neighborhoods where um you know, like lots of Latinx people live or Black people live um, that are now sort of, uh, you know, being gentrified, right? So so there, there's a kind of like, there's real stakes to the conversation there. But also like Chicago overall, like doesn't have a housing shortage, right? Like uh, there are certain neighborhoods um, that are becoming desirable for sort of upper middle class people. And like, that's, that's where we have a, a, a so-called housing shortage. And so like, really, like, I, I mean, just the, the, the fact that those are always the terms of debate I find deeply troubling because, because, you know, you could, you could really reframe this as, yeah, like we have a huge swaths of the city where there's been systemic disinvestment and you know you you have sort of uh, uh, and and that that's it period right right like you know that that's what that's what's making the difference here when we're having these conversations it's not um, that that there's some neighborhoods that have benefited and 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 many who haven't over the last you know thirty or forty years of Chicago politics um, and and of course beyond that um, and so yeah like I mean. It just is so, I mean, it's just so damn frustrating, right? Like, I, you know, um, I guess I don't really have a point or a question, but like, <laughs> you know, oh, like just, just to throw that out there. Like, I, I mean, it, it, it makes me batty just, just to be frank, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, also when you're, when you're thinking about, um, 
I mean, the, the, the housing question in this country is just a, you know, a nightmare, a nightmare knot that we could spend forever untangling. But one of the things is, you know, the systemic um, kind of crushing of labor power in this country since the 70s and reduction of pensions and things like that mean that all of a sudden housing really is, yeah. it's more than a place to live. It's like, you know, it's an asset for a lot of people. And, and it also explains a lot of um, huge historic racial wealth gaps in this country and stuff. So uh, it's it's all kind of unfortunately tied together in this uh, in this system where things are connected that shouldn't be. And, you know, um, there's a lot of kind of um, incentives and counter incentives and, and complicating factors. But uh, one of the one of the interesting things on, I guess, just to go back to Portland again, but part of this um, part of this uh, this residential infill project was supposed to include like this uh, this big anti displacement plan. And that was supposed to roll out before the the upzoning happened, and um, it was supposed to you know prevent people from being displaced and provide relocation assistance and right to return and all this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I think like usually happens in a lot of these cases, the upzoning passed just fine, and <laughs> the anti displacement plan has been referred to a committee and further study and all that stuff, which is kind of shorthand for if it's going to happen, it's not going to be on a time scale. It's going to help anyone. So it's another one of those things where it's like um, <laughs> it, it kind of reveals the the true intent of these things. Um, and it, it turns out that usually it's much less about keeping people housed and providing housing than it is about just kind of, um, you know, increasing developer profits. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, um, like you said, I, it, it's one of the, I mean, it's one of the things that makes it complicated, as, as you pointed out, like so much of it is like uh, there's so many layers, layers to all of to zoning, the economics, the policy, like all, all of it. Like you, you really you really do need like some some modicum of expertise here um, to kind of un, uh, like really unpack it. Um, but I think, uh, you know, where a lot of the kind of current paradigm gets it wrong is uh the under like just fundamentally misunderstanding like where where power comes from right and like what right. the political horizons are or could be in the near future right um and like you don't need to be like you know an urban policy like brain genius to like you know uh understand those things right like um i i thought that um you know, like Medicare for all, I think is like a good example of kind of like, uh, like, I mean, by, by definition, like it's a complicated policy, right? Like you're, you're talking about like nationalizing a whole industry. Um, but like, you know, everyone understands what like the demand is, right? Like, and, and how it impacts their lives. Like, like there's a, there's a way in which, um, that like needle can get threaded and a lot of the the experts and sort of people who are thinking through Medicare for all, like do that very intentionally. Um, and like, maybe if there are any like sort of uh, self-described urban policy wonks who, who are listening to this show, um, first of all, welcome. Uh, I, I <laughs> you know, I don't know, maybe you've already like rage quit uh, this episode, but, but like that, that would be like, maybe my suggestion is like, you know, like put in as much effort into 
um, sort of, you know, making, making this stuff accessible as, as you do to like really is as, as you do in trying to like understand what the implications are. Right. Um, and, and not only that, as Brian, uh, as arguing, like under, understand like what the terms are presuming and how we might move beyond them. Right, totally. I think it it really does quite often just return to like what what is your vision of society and the future, and if if you could do everything your way, um, wh- where would you end up? And I I think that there is for some reason there's a there's a gap on the the housing side of things, and I, I think after Medicare for all, you know whether we get that or whether we all uh, perish in the 2030s. But um, uh, housing really does seem like it's kind of the next the next thing up. And I, I think it really it is a thing that really could benefit from kind of a a left vision outside of the like wonkish, uh, you know, tweaking and all these things. And I, I think honestly, you know, if you're a if you're a pro market urbanist or whatever, um, hopefully you're not, <laughs> but <laughs> it, you, your, your cause could also benefit from kind of articulating like, what is, what is the best case scenario here? What do our cities look like if, if everything goes your way and um, we implement all these policies? And I, I think the, on the left side, it's kind of like, well, if everything came up aces, we would have, you know, hundred percent public housing, nobody would have to be displaced. Um, you know, people could live in their cities, we could accommodate all the climate refugees that are going to be coming in the next decades. And we could live, you know, densely and greenly and happily and all those things. And then I, I, this is maybe uncharitable, but on the other side of it, I just kind of think like, what's the best case? Like, okay, we still have a bunch of private developers, we maybe have some rent control for low income people, maybe we, you know, we're constantly building apartments, there's huge vacancy rates, uh, people are still being displaced. I just don't, it doesn't really click. So I think that I I think on, and then, you know, there's obviously room in the middle for um, kind of uh, transitional visions or whatever you want to say. But I I think that a lot of um, a lot of the kind of shouting past each other that happens, especially on Twitter is kind of like, what, what are we going for here? What's our goal? And, and, and who's going to help us get there? Yeah, totally. Uh, Well, I think that's as good a spot as any to, to wrap up uh, our conversation here. Um, and um, yeah, it, I, it, I'm also now thinking about some of the landmark, uh, some of the, the sort of uh, legislation that's being organized um, around in Chicago. Um, for instance, uh, a gentrifying neighborhood called Pilsen, uh, which maybe some listeners live in or uh, know about, uh, uh, the, the mayor is trying to landmark it um, and, and make it a landmark. I don't know, like the entire neighborhood, basically make it a landmark zone under the kind of pretense that that will halt gentrification um, because it will sort of make it more difficult to, I don't know, for developers to do things. Right. Uh, and the kind of like, which is true, like it will make it life more difficult for developers. Uh, but the kind of left argument has been, yeah, but it'll make it more difficult for the residents who live here to do things also. And we don't have the money to like pay people to navigate a landmarks process. Um, and the developers do, uh, which I think is a very persuasive point um but maybe maybe uh just just to uh, shout that out at the end if, if you're curious about that 
um, you know, I know uh, Pilsen Alliance um, and uh, Chicago DSA are doing some work on that at the moment, especially Pilsen Alliance. Um, so if you're listening to the show, check it out. Um, and maybe I'll try to see if we uh, can't get those guys uh, and gals out here on the podcast. Um, well, Brian, um, yeah, thanks for joining Buildings on Air. Uh, you, you have any any concluding concluding remarks, stray thoughts, things you didn't want left unsaid? um not really i mean you can this is like i said this is a huge issue there's uh there's so many perspectives and voices on it um i think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in california and the bay area right now with different measures and candidates running um on kind of differing housing grounds that people could check out if they're interested um and then uh i'll just make a couple plugs but if you're an architecture worker or architecture adjacent and um you believe that uh, labor has power, you should join the architecture lobby. Uh, Your your city probably has a chapter, and if not, you could start one. Um, It's not that daunting. I did, uh, and it worked out okay. (laughs) Um, And also on the the Portland side and on the the universal program side, I just want to make another plug for uh, there's a universal preschool measure on the ballot here in Portland that a lot of great organizers have fought really hard for over the past couple of years. And um, it looks like it's finally going to become a reality. So if you live in Portland, you should definitely vote yes on uh, measure 26214 preschool for all. Um, it's a, it's a great program guarantees preschool for I think three and four year olds in uh, Multnomah County and um, living wages for teachers and all kinds of good stuff. It's um, it's a really it's really rare to see something this great on the ballot. So if you weren't going to vote, um, I understand that, but please vote for this at least. <laughs> and um, yeah, you can, you can follow me on Twitter and follow the architecture lobby and all that. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Brian. Um, and we'll catch you next time. Pro- probably on a conference call or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at... B-L-D-G-S on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.